Hey, it's good to be back. I uh, am thrilled to be back with you. I missed you last week. I was gone uh, all week long, uh, super long trip, two different, actually three different meetings in two different states. That happens a handful of times a year. And uh, I was saying to a couple of different folks, I, I love it when trips begin. And then I'm really ready to come home <laughs> once the... Uh, once the trips get started. But here's, here's the good news. The bench is deep at the Equip Institute. And so I appreciate uh, Pastor Jeremy jumping in last week and teaching on a topic that is near and dear to his heart uh, with biblical interpretation. And we're going to uh, continue this week talking about an introduction to biblical theology. Before we do that, I want to open us up with a word of prayer, and then I have three quick announcements. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the chance that we have to be here together tonight to talk about biblical theology. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to have sharp minds and soft hearts, and that both of those things would come together in a way that is for our good and for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, I have three announcements for you. The first one, this is a very, this is a big, important announcement. Starting next week, we're going to have a three-hole punch out there on the table. <laughs> so, so I know different folks want different things, and some want them punched and some don't. If we don't punch them, folks say, well, how come they're not punched? If we do punch them, folks say, oh, I didn't want holes in my sheet. So we're going to have a hole punch out there. You're going to be able to do that. Second announcement. December 6th, which is the same evening as the WMU banquet, after that banquet, if you are interested, we are going to have a bonus week of the Institute that is no lesson, no agenda, just what are the questions that folks are thinking about in light of what we've been doing. My wife is back there saying, stump the professor. It is not stump the professor. It is... What is, it that, uh, what is it that you would like to talk about a little bit more? Because, again, we always have a little bit of time for questions, but uh, sometimes it's also fun just to come together and say, well, what are you thinking about? What are we kind of wrestling with on the back end of this? Yes, ma'am. Will that be taped? I don't know. It might be taped. We'll see. We might tape it, but then if it's controversial, we may not post it. No. <laughs> We'll, uh, we'll, we'll take a look and see. And then the third announcement, uh, a couple of you have emailed me already if you've missed a week and I've sent you the, uh, the notes, but actually we now have uh, up and running, uh, we actually had for a couple of weeks now, a Taylor's Institute uh, page within the church website. So that's up here on the whiteboard, taylorsfbc.org backslash institute backslash uh, you can write that down if you want to. But if you go there, you're going to find uh, a link to the podcast as well as uh, being able to pull down the notes for each week electronically. And, uh, and I appreciate uh, Sherry helping us get that put together. And Jeremy, you probably didn't do anything, but I'm going to thank you as well uh, just because I want to I I bless you, brother. So you do so many things. So we're going to thank you even when maybe you didn't have anything to do with it. But... 
we do uh, we do have that up now. So you're st- please email me if you want to. I'm happy to send it to you, but you can just go up there every week and pull down electric uh, electronic copies as well. So with that, let's get started. So you have your handout in front of you. Uh, we always begin by talking about uh, what we're here to do. The Equip Institute exists to equip members of Taylor's First Baptist Church to think rightly about God and His Word for the sake of living rightly before God in His world. This fall, we are spending 12 weeks talking about the Christian story. So last week, we finished up a three-week study of basic biblical interpretation. Next week, we're going to spend several weeks uh, doing kind of a big picture overview of the Old and New Testament. In fact, I was here at the church this afternoon working on next week's lesson, and I'm so excited about next week's lesson, but I've, we've got to talk about this week's lesson. I'm excited about that one too. Uh, but we're going to do just kind of a big picture. Uh, what are the different sections of the Bible? What are the major themes that we find in those sections? How does it all tie together? Uh, so not going through it verse by verse, but again, taking kind of a 30,000-foot view. We'll start next week uh, talking about the first five books of the Bible, uh, the Pentateuch. So we'll do that whenever we come together. But tonight we're going to discuss a concept called biblical theology. And the reason we're talking about it tonight is in many ways it builds a bridge from the conversation that we have been having about how to interpret the Bible uh, to the conversation we're going to start having uh, how... How does the Old Testament hold together? How does the New Testament hold together? What are the major themes that we find across the Bible? So with that, let's talk a little bit about biblical theology. Now, I don't want you to look at your notes for a minute, okay? No looking at the notes. That's cheating. And I know that some of you have cheating hearts. So it's cheating to look at the notes. Who wants to venture a definition of biblical theology? Because it means different things to different people. And there's more than one legitimate way to define it. Oh man, not only do we have cheating hearts, we have chicken hearts. That's, okay, let's... Okay, a, a, a coherent evaluation of themes throughout the context of the Bible, that's one way to define it. Anybody else? Theology of the writer, that's another way. Yeah. I'd say learning about God as, Bible, as the Bible talks about God. Learning about God as the Bible talks about God. Uh, all of these are, are valid ways to talk about biblical theology. In fact, we could spend 12 weeks talking about several different complementary ways to approach this. And maybe we'll do that in the future, but that's not what we're going to do tonight. If you look at the handout now, that's not cheating anymore. Uh, Biblical theology can be defined in different ways. Uh, Many pastors use this term to simply mean theology that comes from the Bible. So, you know, we preach Bible theology, uh, biblical theology at Taylor's First Baptist. We don't preach that self-help stuff. And, uh, And, you know, that is a valid way to talk about biblical theology. But it's a little too broad for our purposes, because by that definition, uh, all theology ought to be biblical theology, right? We want our theology to be driven by the text of Scripture. So it's a perfectly valid way of talking about it, but that's not really what we mean here. And then there are some scholars who, uh, who use the phrase biblical theology 
to talk about the theological emphases of one of the Testaments or a section of Scripture or a particular biblical author. This is like what uh, Rick was talking about just a minute ago. And so, uh, for instance, you can find really good books on topics like a theology of the New Testament or a theology of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, or uh, a theology of the Apostle Paul, or the theology of James. And uh, again, that's very, very helpful. I love that type of biblical theology. Uh, Super useful, especially if the author actually believes in the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. Very, very helpful. But that's a little bit more narrow and technical than what we're going to focus on tonight. So again, Theology that comes from the Bible, yes and amen. Things like the theology of Paul, theology of James, theology of the Sermon on the Mount, that's good stuff. But that's not how we're going to talk about it tonight. For our purposes tonight, biblical theology is the study of how the one unified story of the Bible develops, as well as the development of key recurring themes that Scripture emphasizes, at the center of which is the saving work of Jesus Christ. So it's that one story, the recurring themes within that story, and Jesus is at the heart of that story. That's the way that we're talking about it this evening. Though again, there's more than one good way to talk about it. That one unified story is inspired, it's authoritative, it's truthful, and it's coherent. And by the way, it's, it's those four things because it comes from Scripture. And Scripture is inspired, authoritative, truthful, and coherent. So it only makes sense that the story that Scripture is telling is also those things. I like what one Bible scholar says about this. This is a quote. It's not in your notes, but just to supplement that. The Bible is a unique library of religious texts. Biblical theology enriches our understanding of that library by exploring how the different biblical books contribute to its overall theological message and how, in turn, that overall, messages, that overall message influences our appreciation of each book. So you might think about it this way. When we're doing, a, when we're doing biblical theology the way we're talking about tonight, we're talking about the theology of the whole thing and how it holds together which helps us to appreciate things like Paul's theology or Moses' theology or the theology of this section or that section. Now, biblical theology is different than systematic theology. In the spring, we're going to focus on systematic theology, basic Bible doctrine, 12 weeks. If Jesus doesn't come back, then we're going to talk about that. And the last week, we'll talk about the doctrine of Jesus coming back. But uh, that's what we're going to do in the spring. But biblical theology is different than systematic theology, but ideally the two of them complement each other. Systematic theology attempts to explain what the whole Bible has to say about a given topic. So that's why if you were to go to our library downstairs, you'll find there's a couple of systematic theology books there that you can check out. And if you pull those off the shelf and look at them, they have chapters with titles like the doctrine of God or the doctrine of Scripture or the doctrine of the atonement or the doctrine of second coming because systematic theology is taking that sort of concept and saying, 
what does the Bible have to say about that? And then also it's going to dialogue with things like church history. How have different thinkers thought about it? And different systems. Well, how, do, how does that group of Christians think about it versus that group of Christians and which one's closer to Scripture? That's not what biblical theology does. Systematic theology is great, but biblical theology attempts to study the Scriptures in both their canonical and redemptive historical contexts. Let me, let me define that for just a minute. So canon, we mean Genesis to Revelation. Redemptive historical, we're talking about the history that's developing within the canon. So sometimes biblical theology is focusing on different sections of the canon. How's this author interacting with that author? Other times it's more about the story developing around things like figures, covenants, the idea of the kingdom, things like that. But both of them, ways of tracing that story across the scripture. So when we do that, it allows the story to develop and the recurring themes to develop both across the canon and inside the story that the scriptures are telling. So again, this is not uh, this is not like systematic theology where, okay, let me ask a question. How many of you have ever, uh, you've probably not spent a lot of time in the junkyard, but maybe you've at le- maybe you have, but maybe you've at least watched a movie or a cartoon where there's a junkyard. And you know the magnetic cranes that come through and they're picking up all the stuff and they move it over to the compactor. You know what I'm talking about, right? Okay, nodding is good because I feel kind of strange if you don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so with systematic theology, you pick a theme like angels and you move that magnet over the Bible and you pull up every verse about angels and you put it all together and say, this is what the Bible teaches about angels. Biblical theology doesn't do that. Biblical theology says, how does the idea of angel develop from Genesis to Revelation? And whenever we think about development, what we find is almost everything in the Bible begins with us knowing that much. And by the end, we know that much. And what we know increases over time. Does that make sense? The themes develop, and they develop in different ways as that story unfolds. Any questions about that before we start talking about the really fun stuff? That's kind of background. By the way, you'll note we have less to talk about tonight. We're trying to manage the time so that we're not racing at the end and there's time for questions. Well, let's talk about the grand biblical narrative. And I have a confession. I get really, really excited about this topic. So if I get a little bit preachy, I'm going to need somebody to say, tone it down, you're getting a little bit preachy. But, uh, but I love, love talking about this. So one common way of studying biblical theology, and if we're only going to talk about it for one week right now, I think this is the thing to talk about. One common way of studying biblical theology is thinking about what is sometimes called the grand biblical narrative. If we think of Scripture as telling a story, and for four weeks we've talked a lot about how the Bible's telling one story. So if we think of Scripture as telling a story, the grand biblical narrative is the plot line of that story as it develops across the canon of Scripture. 
playing off of this idea of a narrative. The main character in the narrative is the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is creator and king, and who is rescuing his rebellious human creatures and restoring his corrupted, created order through the saving actions of Jesus Christ for his glory and the eternal flourishing of all creation. I think that's the big picture of Scripture. That's what God's doing. This triune God created all things, glorifying himself by rescuing individual sinners and eventually making all things new through the saving work of Jesus Christ. That's the story that we get in Scripture. This narrative is foundational for developing a biblical worldview, which is our interpretive grid for thinking Christianly about all of life. Have any of you ever changed glasses prescriptions before? Right? Have any of you ever done that and kept the old glasses for a little while? You know, they always tell you, keep the glasses from the time before just in case the new ones break. Uh, I've been in that situation where the new ones break or you, you lose the new ones. And isn't it interesting, if you've been in that situation, you go back to just the prescription that you had six months ago that's really close to the prescription you have now. But you put those old glasses on and what happens? You get headaches. Things are a little bit blurry. You've got you to take them off all the time to, to read something up close or to see something far away, depending upon what's going on with your particular situation with your eyes. You've got to have the right lenses to see things clearly. And when you don't have the right lenses, you get headaches and things get distorted. A biblical worldview is the right lens for viewing everything. And that right lens for viewing everything arises from the biblical narrative. So it's foundational to a biblical worldview. You might think of the biblical, excuse me, the grand biblical narrative as the story of stories, the one great story in which all of our individual stories find their true meaning. All of our stories are different, aren't they? No two people in this room have identical testimonies, but all of our stories find their real meaning when we understand them in light of this story, when we see how we fit in with what God's doing from Genesis to Revelation, from creation to consummation. As the title of one of the most helpful books on this topic uh, says, uh, and I'll recommend the book a little bit later, the Bible is the true story of the whole world. As we get to know each other, you're going to find that I have lots of catchphrases. And one of the things I say all the time is that the Bible is the true story of the whole world. Because I think in a culture that's looking for meaning, and especially I spend most of my time uh, when I'm not here uh, at church, and some of my time when I am here at church, uh, working with Gen Z, young people, they care a lot about stories. They care a lot about their story and about their identity and questions of identity. Our culture's debating identity. There's lots of stories out there in the world, but the Bible gives us the true story of the whole world that applies to all people everywhere. 
and we make sense of all those rival competing stories, and we make sense of all of our individual stories whenever we frame it in light of this story. Now, different authors break up the story in different ways. And because I think all of them are helpful and, and none of them are more inspired than the others, again, we're talking about what human authors are doing with it, not the Bible itself. So the work that those pastors and scholars do isn't inspired. Uh, we're going to look at four different examples because I think it's just helpful to see how different godly teachers break down this story. So first, in his book, God's Big Picture, Tracing the Storyline of the Bible, you'll see it recommended at the end, Vaughn Roberts focuses on the theme of God's kingdom. And this is how he breaks up the grand biblical narrative. He talks about the pattern of the kingdom, that's creation, the perished kingdom, that's the fall, the promised kingdom, that's the idea of covenant as it develops. The partial kingdom, the nation of Israel, pointing forward. The prophesied kingdom, that time of exile when the prophets are speaking to what's to come. The present kingdom, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, bringing in God's kingdom. The proclaimed kingdom, the church and the gospel going forward, and then the perfected kingdom, restoration, when it all comes together. So you see what he's doing there. He's picking a major theme, kingdom, and I think it is one of the three or four most important themes in the Bible, and he's tracing the storyline through the idea of a kingdom. Von Roberts is a pastor in a university town. He's a Bible-believing Anglican priest who's a pastor in Oxford, England, that Oxford, where he's working with really smart students and professors asking really big questions about life. And this is the way that he's teaching the Bible in his church to help his church engage with the folks who live in their very highly educated and increasingly secular community. And so this is how he does it. So again beginning with creation, ending with restoration, how do things develop along the way? I'll say a little bit more about that book in just a few minutes. Let me give you a second example. In their book, The True Story of the Whole World, this is the one I referenced a minute ago, Craig Bartholomew and Michael Goheen break up what they call the drama of Scripture into six acts. And like Von Roberts, they kind of organized it around the idea of kingdom. So act one, think a play. Act one, God established his kingdom. That's creation. The second act, there was rebellion in the kingdom. That's the fall of the first humans and all the consequences. Act three, the king chooses Israel. This is the initiation of restoration. He's beginning to put things back together with the nation of Israel. Act 4 is the coming of the king. Restoration accomplished. He's talking about the saving work of Jesus. 
Act 5 is spreading the news of the king, the mission of the church. And Act 6 is the return of the king. Not the book or the movie. But we're talking about the Bible. Restoration completed. Now, what I love about Von Roberts is I love the way that he develops things around the kingdom, and I, and I like it that uh, he goes out of his way to uh, talk about covenant and Israel and exile because I would break it up very similarly. But what I like about this second one, the drama of Scripture, is it makes or, uh, the true story of the whole world, it makes a little bit more clear the idea of mission because that's where we're living now. And that's a major theme that we see in scriptures that we're going to talk about in just a minute. And so again, none of them are perfect. They're all helpful. But you see, they're doing something very similar, aren't they? They're standing over scripture. They're looking Genesis to Revelation. They're assuming it's one story, a story about Jesus. And they're saying, how does that story develop? And what makes the most sense of that story? Numerous authors divide the storyline of Scripture into either three or four parts. This is probably what's most common, so this is why I saved it for now. So this also focuses a little bit more on the theme of God's redeeming work through Jesus Christ. So sometimes you see this narrative in three parts, creation, fall, redemption. Other times you see it in four parts, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Restoration is part of redemption. It's just a part. It's a question of do you want to separate that out to kind of get to the end, or do you want to pull it into redemption? But they're trying to do the same thing. How many of you have heard that language before of creation, fall, redemption, or creation, fall, redemption, restoration? Really common. Pretty easy to remember. So this approach is especially common among two types of folks when they're using biblical theology. It's common in writings and teachings about a biblical worldview. So you can find all kinds of books that are an introduction to a biblical worldview. Or you can find teaching series that's uh, how to think about a biblical worldview, and they're often framed with these three or four. So it's really common in writing and teaching about biblical worldview. But let me tell you where it's also really common. It's really common in evangelistic presentations as a way to talk about the gospel. Uh, and so uh, there's, in fact, even one of my favorite gospel tracks is called The Story. And it's built around these four different points that are there. And so, again, if, if I'm talking to college students about a biblical worldview, I actually did this in chapel at North Greenville today. Uh, I, I was preaching in chapel. I briefly mentioned a biblical worldview and referred to creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And whenever I've been sharing the gospel in the past, especially whenever I've been sharing the gospel overseas with people whose worldview assumptions are very different, I've gone this way. Before talking about God, man, Christ response, talking about creation, fall, redemption, restoration, so that we're talking about the same story and then building a bridge to the sort of gospel presentation that we might make here. Because sharing the gospel with somebody who comes from a radically different worldview, whether they're out there in the nations or whether they're your neighbor, 
that's different than sharing the gospel with somebody who's really already like you but lost. There's a lot of people in upstate South Carolina that are lost Christians. Now, I know that you're not a Christian unless you're born again. You know what I mean when I say that, right? Like they're lost Christians. They grew up in church. Grandma's buried in the cemetery. They know who Billy Graham is if they're of a certain age, or they know who uh, John Piper is if they're of a different age, or something like that. They're probably rebelling against their childhood faith. Uh, there's a lot of lost people that are like that, and they're really lost. But they already share a lot of our worldview assumptions. The God they don't believe in, they know is our God. The Jesus they think is just a man or just a good teacher, it's still a reaction to the Jesus of the Bible, right? They understand categories like sin and grace and guilt, even if they're not fully formed in their mind. Uh, they might even like many of the same things that we like. They might root for the same teams that you root for. They might vote for the same political party that you vote for. They're often really nice, respectable people that are a lot like us, comma, except they're not saved yet. If that's where they are, we can pretty easily get to God, man, Christ response, right? But what if they say, which God are you talking about? Or what if they say, I am religious, but that's not the God I worship? Or what if they say, I don't feel any guilt for sin, but I carry deep shame over sin? These are different conversations. And so again, often talking about the storyline of Scripture is that first step in evangelism so that you can eventually get them to the place where they're asking, what must I do to be saved? So again, very common to hear this language of creation, fall, redemption, or creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Now, I'm going to show you just how nerdy I am. I don't often do this, but I actually have my own way of breaking this down. That sounds a lot like these other guys, but it's the way I do it. And, uh, and, and while you're not a captive audience like my students, you're in here. <laughs> you're not captive. You can leave anytime. So this is when I, when I talk about this in my classes at North Greenville, this is how I like to break it down. And you're going to hear echoes of the things that we've talked about before. Uh, so I talk about these eight plot points. Uh, scripture starts with creation, and tragically, very quickly, it moves to the fall. But there's good news. Almost as soon as the fall, there's the promise. And we start to see the promise develop in the nation of Israel. But it doesn't develop fully. And then we see what at the time seemed like a major plot twist, but whenever we stand over Scripture, it's consistent with everything that we've seen. Uh, this one comes who is the Christ, the Messiah, and he fulfills those things that don't get quite right with Israel. And instead of being a new version of Israel, we are the church, which is the fulfillment of Israel, but grafted into Israel's God. And that church has a mission. Go therefore and make disciples of the nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things. And lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. And then that mission ultimately reaches its completion with restoration. There's not an infallible way to do this. You may be looking at all of these and saying, well, I don't think I would maybe say Israel. I think I would say so-and-so. Or you may be saying, I don't know why you pulled out promise and emphasize that. Or you may be saying, where is so-and-so? And that's fine. It doesn't matter necessarily that all of us divide it up in exactly the same way as long as we are all recognizing that Scripture tells one story. The story of the triune God who created all things, who is rescuing individual sinners and ultimately will renew all things through the saving work of Jesus Christ. That's what's most important is that we get that story right. And all of this that we're talking about are just strategies for how to break down that story in a way that helps it make sense to people. Whether it's making sense to people who are already believers who are digging deeper, or whether it's helping to make sense to unbelievers. So there's not even anything wrong with, uh, with having a longer way of thinking about it and a shorter way of thinking about it. That's exactly what I do. When I'm teaching about it, it's eight points, sometimes nine, sometimes ten. I'm always revising it. But when I'm teaching about it, it's eight points. When I'm speaking quickly to it or I'm sharing the gospel, it's three or four points. But both ways of dividing it are telling the same story. From creation to consummation with Jesus and what he's done in the middle. So any questions about this idea of a grand biblical narrative, this singular coherent story that's being developed across the Bible? Yes, sir. Fill out, how do you fully define the restoration? That's a great question. How do I fully define restoration? So when I'm thinking about restoration, I'm thinking about four chapters in the scriptures. I'm thinking about Isaiah 65 and 66, and I'm thinking about Revelation 21 and 22. And they're both telling the same story, but one's telling it on one side of the king, the other's telling it on the other side of the king. And when they talk about restoration, what they're not talking about is heaven. So let's chase this rabbit for just a minute. The Bible teaches that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. If we walk out of here, and if I get struck by lightning in the parking lot, my soul will be separated from my body and my soul will be in the presence of the Lord. Praise God. But that is not the end. And too often in our teaching and especially in our singing, we act like that's the end. And that the end game for us is being these disembodied souls that are floating around in heaven singing praise and worship songs forever and maybe there's a harp, that sort of thing. But that is not the end. Revelation 21, 22, 
and Isaiah 65 and 66 are the end. And it's not disembodied souls that are floating around heaven. It is a new creation. The new Jerusalem. A restored earth. Our bodies and souls reunited at the last resurrection so that we are once again in sold bodies as we have been in this life, brought back together. And it's physical and it's flesh. And Jesus is there, not in the same way that he's in our hearts. He's there. And it's so much more glorious than floating around in heaven and singing your favorite hymn. It is earth the way it is intended to be. That's what I mean by restoration. Friends, think about this. There is a day that is coming where sickness, sorrow, sin, and death will forever remain a part of your testimony, but will no more be a part of your present reality. It'll be part of your backstory. We can say that. Scripture teaches that. But I can't fathom what it's like to be me as I was intended to be. And I bet you can either. It boggles the mind in a great way that glorifies the Lord. So I want you to remember, heaven is glorious, but heaven is not our home. Heaven is a temporary thing. Our home is this earth, fully restored and redeemed to what it's intended to be with no sin, no suffering. Us as people, worshiping the King, walking by sight that is the fulfillment of our faith. That's where we're heading. I know I'm chasing the rabbit. I told you I'd get preachy. So next time you're at a funeral, next time you're at a funeral, here's what I don't want you to think to yourself. I don't want you to think is there anybody in here named Bob? Okay, just wanted to make sure I'm not talking about anybody in here. Okay. When you're at Bob's funeral, I don't want you looking at that casket and saying to yourself, that's not Bob. Bob's in heaven. Bob's soul is in heaven. But that body is just as much Bob as Bob's soul. And one day that body and that soul are going to be reunited again as it's intended to be. Because God wants Bob, not just who Bob is on the inside. He wants all of Bob. And that's what he's going to do. So we'll talk about this a little bit more next semester. But that's what I mean by restoration, where things are really heading. And it is so much better than heaven, even though heaven is so much greater than we can even imagine. Just think about what God's going to do. Yes, ma'am. Can I chase a rabbit now, too? Oh, we love rabbits. <laughs> what about cremated bodies? <laughs> <laughs> so, this question often comes up. If we're talking about bodies being restored, uh, what about cremated bodies? Let me, let me add to your question. Uh, what about bodies that weren't intentionally cremated, but they're incinerated in warfare? What about people who die at sea and their bodies become fish food? 
So here's what I would say. The God who created every atom that makes up you can find every atom that's a part of you and make you again. That's what's going to happen. So now it is true that historically Christians and Jews have both preferred the burial of bodies over cremation because of it being a testimony to the resurrection. But you can't chapter and verse one version over the other. Does that make sense? Like There is no thou shalt or thou shalt not with a dead body uh, whenever it dies. So the same God that created you bit by bit can find all the bits and bring them back together again. And that's what he's going to do at the last day. All right. Yes, sir. The script. Oh, for restoration. The scriptures for restoration. Four key chapters in the Bible: Isaiah sixty-five and sixty-six, which are the last two chapters in Isaiah, and then Revelation twenty-one and twenty-two, which are the last two chapters in the New Testament. So those are the four key chapters that talk about the new creation. Lots of verses here and there that reference it. But those four chapters, all about restoration. So let's talk about, yes, sir. Okay. Correct. Right, the body is restored to the soul at resurrection. So the body could be anywhere. The body could be anywhere and everywhere. The body could be anywhere and everywhere. I mean, even those body, even bodies that have been in the graves for very long, there's not a lot of there there as time goes on. So again, God knows how to find all the bits and pieces and bring them back together again. Yes, ma'am. Facebook says, when we die, we return to the universe. Well, that would not be the true story of the whole world. <laughs> we have a, uh, there's a, uh, our, our family loves Broadway musicals. And, uh, and, and we get songs stuck in our head and there's a Broadway musical where there's a song, uh, We're All Made of Stars. And, and maybe you've heard that song before, and it's talking about how the same cosmic stuff of the universe is found in, in all of us. And I don't know why that's what I thought of whenever you said that, but we're not going to return to the universe. We're going we're gonna to return to the creator of the universe. That's what's going to happen. So let's talk about some recurring themes in biblical theology. The Bible contains several dozen recurring themes. However... Certain themes are developed progressively across the canon of Scripture as the grand biblical narrative unfolds. And remember, that's what we're talking about, that development that happens. So some of these themes are constantly present. They're almost always there. Others kind of keep jumping in at different points to move the plot along. I have seen lists with as many as 25 or 30 themes. And there's probably even more than that. And some of you are going to say, Nathan, how come you're not naming my theme? This is my story. This is my song, praising that theme all the day long. How come you didn't put it in there? I'm just telling you what I see 
as the most common recurring themes that we see in Scripture. And you're going to see that there's some overlap, as you would expect when it's a unified story. God's glory is a theme that we see from Genesis to Revelation. So think about things like God's sovereignty, or that God is worthy of worship, or that God rules and reigns over all things. These are God's attributes. You know, these are all things that are tied to this idea of God's glory. God's creation of all things that are not God. That's a recurring theme throughout Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, that God created everything that ain't God, which means God created everything, right? So we see that constantly. A major theme, humanity as God's good but fallen image bearers. And friends, it is important that we get that order right. We are not bad, but we do good sometimes. We were created good, but everything is bent and tainted and corrupted by the power of the fall but we're still good. We still bear the image of God. He is still glorified, big picture, whenever we do good things for good reasons. That's just not enough to save us because every part of us is tainted by sin. So we're good, but fallen image bearers, creation and fall, the dignity of humanity, sanctity of human life from womb to tomb, all of these part of this theme. God's mission to redeem sinners and restore His creation. So much packed into this one. Grace, salvation, missions, the idea that the gospel is a universal message for all people everywhere, atonement, all of that part of this recurring theme that God is on mission to save sinners and restore His creation. In fact, when we do missions, we're being invited to participate in God's mission because it has always been God's mission to redeem sinners and restore the created order. God's gracious love for sinners and His just wrath towards sin from Genesis to Revelation, God loves sinners. And God is pouring out His wrath on sin. And we see those things come together with gospel, atonement, cross, resurrection, sacrificial system. But we see it throughout. God really does love sinners. And he really is going to pour out his wrath on sin. And we see that throughout Scripture. I love this one. God's gracious presence among his people. This is such an important theme in Scripture that we miss sometimes. So I call this the, every, the everywhere but mostly there principle. Throughout Scripture, we find that God is everywhere, but he's mostly there. So, when God creates the garden, He's everywhere, 
But he's mostly in that garden where he walks in the cool of the day with the first humans. God is everywhere, but he's mostly in that tabernacle where his presence rests for Israel to even see it sometimes. God is everywhere, but he's mostly in that temple where his glory fills the temple when it's completed in a way that they can see that causes them to rejoice. God is everywhere, but he is mostly in the eternal son who has become man, who came to tabernacle among us to be God's presence among us. God is everywhere, but he is mostly in the church where he indwells the individual lives of his people and where he is present where two or more are gathered in his name. God is everywhere, and everywhere is the new Jerusalem. From garden to city, God is everywhere, but he's especially some places from Genesis to Revelation, and it's with his people. It's a remarkable theme that includes all kinds of ideas in Scripture. God's conquest of all his would-be rivals. We see this from Genesis to Revelation. This brings in things like judgment against idolatry. This brings in ideas like the, the final consummation of the kingdom where Isaiah 65 and 66 talk about the kings of the earth coming to the new Jerusalem and bringing their glory to the true king. God is going to conquer all his rivals. He doesn't say there is no place for vengeance. He says, vengeance is mine, thus saith the Lord. He will brook no rivals. And we see that from Genesis to Revelation. Another major theme, God's kingdom as it develops progressively through the biblical covenants. So this ties together all kinds of ideas, right? God's people under God's rule in God's place for God's glory. The whole idea of progressive revelation, learning more and more about God and His character as the story of Scripture develops. But running from Genesis to Revelation is the idea that God's kingdom is advancing and it is, it's advancing through these biblical covenants. Now, I'm not talking about Christians debating whether or not there's eternal covenants in the mind of God before the foundation of the world. That is a worthwhile conversation to have, but on some level, that's speculation. There are clearly biblical covenants that develop out God's kingdom. So that's what we're talking about. Not speculative theology that may be consistent with Scripture, but what Scripture clearly says about these covenants from creation to consummation and the kingdom that develops there. God's priests and their service. All kinds of ideas here. Purity, forgiveness of sins, worship, sacrifice, service. This recurring theme that God has set apart priests for His service. By the way, who are those priests in the New Covenant? 
all y'all, all of us, a kingdom, a kingdom of priests, the priesthood of all believers, all of us set apart and called to the ministry of the gospel with whatever that looks like, with our particular circumstances and gifts and situations and things like that. Yes, we set apart some men to be pastors. Yes, we set apart folks to be deacons. Yes, we hire people to do certain things on the staff, but all of us are part of the royal priesthood. All of us are called to share the gospel and serve others for God's glory and their good. The exile and exodus of God's people. A major theme in the Old Testament. There's a whole book called Exodus, right? They were exiled to Egypt and then delivered. Exiled to pagan nations around them with a partial deliverance. And what does Peter say of us now? We are exiles. But one day there will be deliverance. That deliverance that we've been calling restoration. When the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ and He shall reign forever and ever. God's promises and their fulfillment, a major theme across the scripture. All the covenants, all the prophecies, certainly Jesus as the the ultimate fulfillment. We see throughout scripture beginning with Genesis 3.15, whenever we get that first hint of the gospel, where in judging the serpent, God says that one of her seed will crush your head. Promise and fulfillment. And finally, God's holiness, wisdom, and love displayed in all His attributes and actions. Who God is and what He does. God has lots of attributes. We'll talk about that next semester. But His holiness, His wisdom, and His love closely tied to each other, all going together and all influencing, influencing isn't the right word, but being related to all of His other attributes. That's who God is. Any questions about these recurring themes? There's a lot of them. I'm trying to think of the ones that stand out to me and kind of what fits under others, but again... Some of these could have been two or three different themes within one. But these are the sort of themes that we trace through Scripture when we do biblical theology. So let me tie this back to what we did last week. Biblical interpretation, digging deeper. Bible scholar, who I'm going to quote, says this, The study of biblical theology is about understanding how each part of the Bible contributes in a distinctive way to the overarching story of the Bible and how an awareness of this story informs our understanding of each part of the Bible. So, biblical theology can add a helpful layer, if you will, to deepen our interpretation of the Bible. It doesn't take the place of what we've done the last three weeks. It's digging one step deeper with what we've done the last three weeks. Does that make sense? The last three weeks have been Interpretation 101. This is 201. We're challenging you just a little bit. 
Our understanding of biblical inspiration and authority reminds us that the story we find in Scripture is true and that it matters for all people everywhere. We talked about that the first week. The canon of Scripture was formed around this story, especially by the leaders in the early church who saw the New Testament as an inspired and authoritative continuation of the Old Testament. We talked about that the second week. The story transcends the various genres of Scripture, each of which contribute to the grand biblical narrative. We talked about that weeks two and week three. We can see the fuller meaning of the text when we understand where it fits into the story that the Scriptures are developing. You talked about that last week. So again, this is helping us to dig just a little bit deeper. We don't want to leave 101 behind. We always do 101. Or to use Taylor's First Baptist language, we always use E3. That is the foundation of the building. We always start there. But sometimes we want to step upstairs. And we want to step upstairs. Biblical theology helps us see things from a higher level and how all those E3s of all those different passages fit together into this one story that we get from Genesis to Revelation. So I have a handful of recommendations for you. If you're interested in a study Bible that focuses on biblical theology, I would recommend the NIV Biblical Theology Study Bible. The NIV is not my favorite translation. It's not a bad one. It's just not my favorite. But the notes in this study Bible are solid gold if you're interested in biblical theology. I want to recommend some books to you. I've got two books that are on uh, kind of a basic introduction to biblical theology. Nick Roark and David Klein's book, Biblical Theology, How the Church Faithfully Teaches the Gospel. That's a kind of very basic introduction for everyday Christians to biblical theology. And then Jeremy Kimball and Ched Spellman's Invitation to Biblical Theology. Uh, that's more of a college-level textbook if you wanted to dig a little bit deeper. So those are both intros. Vaughn Roberts' God's Big Picture. We referenced that earlier. That is the best short, basic introduction to the grand narrative of Scripture, in my opinion. And then Bartholomew and Goheen, The True Story of the Whole World. Uh, that's more of an intermediate introduction to the grand narrative of Scripture. So... Two different categories, an introduction to biblical theology and then more specifically the grand narrative of Scripture, giving you a starting place, something to dig a little bit deeper if you want to. And then if anybody here is really, really brave and you're saying, I want to read a biblical theology, of the, like the Genesis to Revelation theology, my recommendation is Tom Schreiner's The King in His Beauty, a biblical theology of the Old and New Testaments. Uh, he is one of my former professors. He is a friend. He is a Southern Baptist scholar. And I think that this is a wonderful book. You can see how uh, someone who is like us puts everything together as he's going not just through that grand biblical narrative, but also doing the whole what's Paul's theology, what's John's theology, what's Matthew's theology, what's Isaiah's theology, stuff like that. So you get both the grand narrative as well as the theology of the different sections and the different thinkers. Any questions? Back up to uh, 
God's priest in their services? Yes. Would the 144,000 be plugged into there? So the question is, are the 144,000 uh, plugged into the idea of God's priests and their service? And um, I think the answer is yes, because they are believers, and so they're part of that kingdom of priests. I also would say that they're part of the exile and exodus theme. So they're the ones who are still kind of there in exile bearing witness. And so uh, we can take lots of things in Scripture and see how different themes like that sort of intersect with those. Other questions? Blake. Blake, you've not asked a question yet. We'll give you one. Um, how do you think biblical theology should be used in preaching? How do I think biblical theology should be used in preaching? So I don't think we should ever try to impose it on a text. Sometimes the very best way to preach a text is just kind of what's right there in front of you. But whenever what's right there in front of you is very obviously tied to bigger themes that trace throughout, I don't think there's anything wrong with a pastor uh, chasing a rabbit for a minute and showing how that sort of thing ties. I also don't think there's anything wrong with occasionally preaching what I just call a biblical theological sermon that's not a looking at that one text and here's three points on those five verses, but that's tracing one of those themes. Uh, I have a couple of different sermons that I preach on different themes uh, in other churches where I'm filling the pulpit or something like that, where I say to them at the very beginning, this is not an expository sermon where we're going to talk about four points on one text. We're going to look at four different texts in different places in the Bible and show how this idea is traced out. So I think that that sort of sermon occasionally complements things like preaching through books of the Bible or sections of the Bible. Yes, ma'am. This is very simple. You recommend the NIV Biblical Theological Study Bible. How do you compare that to the ESV that's very popular here at Yes, ma'am. I love that question. How do I compare the NIV Biblical Theology Study Bible to the ESV Study Bible? So the first three weeks, you may remember the one I recommended is the ESV Study Bible. I think that is the best study Bible if you only have one study Bible. And it does deal some with biblical theology. It has an article on biblical theology that's very helpful. And, uh, and they do a little bit of biblical theology in the notes. What I think makes this different is that the whole point is biblical theology. So they're focused much more on those themes and how they all tie together. And all of their articles focus on biblical theology. So it's, it's really just a matter of emphasis and uh, being very focused on this idea. This, if I can use it this way, this is a more um, narrow and focused study Bible on this one particular way to do things versus the ESV, which is trying to give you a good introduction to all the different ways that we do things when we come to Scripture. Any, any others? Yes, sir. The scholar I quoted at the end? Okay. The scholar is T.D. Alexander. I'm trying not to just drop names whenever I give quotes, but I'm always willing to drop a name if you ask. I just don't want to bog it down. So T.D. Alexander, he's an Old Testament biblical theologian, and, uh, and this is what he says. The study of biblical theology is about understanding how each part of the Bible contributes in a distinctive way 
to the overarching story of the Bible and how an awareness of this story informs our understanding of each part of the Bible. So it's circular. Each of the parts help us understand the big story. The big story helps us to more fully appreciate each of the parts. Let's close with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. It is an infinite treasure. And we thank you, Father, that uh, you have blessed us with uh, godly scholars and, and pastors and others uh, who write things and preach things that help us to better understand your word. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be good biblical theologians in all the senses that we talked about at the beginning of this lesson. And we pray, uh, especially after this, that you would help us to go to scriptures with faith-filled eyes looking for these different themes and how they develop. And we look forward to all the things that you're going to teach us by your Spirit, through your Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Next week, Genesis through Deuteronomy. We'll start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. See you then. <laughs>